Father, we thank you that your word tells us that where our sin abounds, your grace superabounds. It abounds all the more. And when we have truly come to know that we have sinned against you, that we have done things that have offended you, we have committed crimes against your holiness, we have broken your law, Lord, when we come to that realization and we begin to see just the, the mountains and mountains of, of sin that, that, that stains our hands, and then when we consider that we don't even see it all, as, as a theologian said, there's not a man who knows the hundredth part of his sin, that what we see is only the tip of the iceberg. Lord, if, if it weren't for your word telling us that where sin abounds, your grace abounds all the more, uh, we would despair. But we thank you that the value of Jesus' sacrifice, he who is God in the flesh, his, the value of his sacrifice was such that not even that, that mountain of sin could cope with, with your grace that overflowed into our lives through his sacrifice and washed us clean, washed every dark speck of sin away and made us white as snow. And Lord, even now as believers, when we stumble into sin, Lord, we thank you for your promise that when we confess our sins, you are faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We thank you for that truth. We thank you for what our Lord has accomplished in our redemption that he purchased on the cross. Lord, help us to know you better, to love our Lord more. Through your word, we pray this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're continuing through Ruth chapter 4. And I had intended to be able to cover this chapter in three messages, but I keep coming across uh, parts of this chapter that I realize I need to take time and explain more so that we can all come to a, a full appreciation or a fuller appreciation of what is being said. So we're only going to look at verses 9 and 10 today, but I want to read from verse 1 just so we can remind ourselves of what is taking place in this chapter. So I'm reading Ruth 4, verses 1 through 10. It says, Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the close relative, or the redeemer, of whom Boaz spoke was passing by. So he said, turn aside, friend, or turn aside, so-and-so, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. He took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the closest relative, Naomi, who has come back from the land of Moab, has to sell the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. So I thought to inform you, saying, Buy it before those who are sitting here and before the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of the deceased, in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. The closest relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself because I would jeopardize my own inheritance. Redeem it for yourself. You may have my right of redemption, for I cannot redeem it. 
Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning the redemption and the exchange of land to confirm any matter. A man removed his sandal and gave it to another. And this was the manner of attestation in Israel. So the closest relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself. And he removed his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and to all the people, you are witnesses today that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilian and Malan. Moreover, I have acquired Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malan, to be my wife in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance so that the name of the deceased will not be cut off from his brothers or from the court of his birthplace. You are witnesses today. In Luke's Gospel, chapter 10, verses 17 to 20, we are told of the disciples' joy as they returned from the missionary journey that Jesus sent them on. Remember, he had sent his disciples two by two to proclaim the good news of the kingdom and to cast out demons and to uh, heal the sick. Jesus gave them the authority to do that. In Luke 10, we find these disciples coming back and they're thrilled. They're thrilled over the fact that even the demons were subject to them in Jesus' name. But in verse 20 of that chapter, Jesus says this to them. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. Rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. This may seem morbid, but I enjoy walking through the cemetery next door. And what I, what I like to do as I walk through the cemetery is to read the names and the dates and the epitaphs that are recorded on the tombstones. And I always wonder, what were their lives like? Who were the people they loved? Who loved them? What were the things they, they accomplished? Who did they impact? Did they know the Lord Jesus or not? And if you were to take a walk among those graves, and if you were to come to the old section of the cemetery, you will find many tombstones where the names and the dates and the epitaphs are unreadable because of the weathering that has taken place over the past couple hundred years. And I'm always disappointed when I can't make out who that person was, when they lived, and what was said about them. Their names are lost to me. And it's a sobering reminder that in a couple hundred years, my name also will likely be lost to a future generation who will walk among those tombstones. And it reminds me of our need to make sure that our names are written in a more lasting place, that our names are written in heaven, where no amount of weathering can efface them and where our Redeemer holds them safely in his hands, never forgetting who we are, and graciously granting us the blessing of living with him forever. As we progress through a couple more verses in Ruth 4, we're going to see this concern for the continuance of one's name and inheritance. We just studied in Sunday school how in Christ we have in heaven an inheritance that will not perish, it will not be defiled, it will not fade away. Well, this concern over one's inheritance and the continuance of one's name is something that we'll 
we'll study in verses 9 and 10 of this chapter. We're going to see how the family redeemer, Boaz, keeps the names of one family in particular from being lost. And in his example, we will be reminded of our great need for a mighty redeemer to prevent our names from being lost. Just to remind us of what we looked at last week, we saw how the nearer redeemer, who was nameless, we called him Mr. So-and-so, that's what the narrator said about him, he's just so-and-so, he doesn't give us the name, but we saw how this nameless man gave up his right of redemption to Boaz, which, in accordance with the custom of the day, he symbolized giving up that right by taking off his sandal and handing it to Boaz. And Mr. So-and-so's reason for refusing to redeem Naomi's land and for refusing to marry Ruth was, in his words in verse 6, that he would jeopardize his own inheritance. He would jeopardize his own inheritance. In the Old Testament, the only other instance where we find an example of, of this sort of uh, responsibility laid before someone is Genesis 38, this example of leveret marriage. So turn over to Genesis 38. And just to remind us of what leveret marriage is, as you're turning to Genesis 38, let me read you from Deuteronomy 25 again. So turn to Genesis 38, but I am going to first read from Deuteronomy just to remind us of what leveret marriage is. So Deuteronomy 25, verse 5 says, When brothers live together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside the family to a strange man. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her to himself as wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. It shall be that the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of his dead brother. So the child born of that union would legally not be uh, the child of the father, but the child of the dead brother, in order to continue his name in Israel. Uh, Verse 6, it shall be that the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of his dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. But if the man does not desire to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to establish a name for his brother in Israel. He is not willing to perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. And that's what we saw in Mr. So-and-so. He was unwilling to fulfill that duty. And so he took off his sandal and gave it to Boaz. It continues in Deuteronomy 25, verse 8. Then the elders of his city shall summon him and speak to him. And if he persists and says, I do not desire to take her, then his brother's wife shall come to him in the sight of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall declare, thus it is done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. In Israel, his name shall be called the house of him whose sandal is removed. So because he refuses to, to raise up a son in the name of his brother in order to continue his brother's name in Israel, his name basically is lost, and he's just known as the guy 
who would not raise up a son for his, his brother. And that's basically what happened to Mr. So-and-so. Hence why I'm calling him Mr. So-and-so. We don't know his name because he refused to do this duty. There's another person who refused to do this duty for his dead brother. And that's where Genesis 38 comes in. We have the instance of Judah and his three sons and his daughter-in-law, Tamar. So let me read, starting in verse 1 of Genesis 38. It says, And it came about at that time that Judah, remember Judah was one of Jacob's sons, Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he took her and went into her. So she conceived and bore a son, and he named him Ur. Then she conceived again and bore a son and named him Onan. She bore still another son and named him Shelah, and it was at Kazib that she bore him. Verse 6, now Judah took a wife for Ur, and, who was his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord took his life. Now here's the key part, verse 8. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform your duty as a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. So he's wanting him to perform the duty of Leveret marriage. Verse 9, Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So when he went into his brother's wife, he wasted his seed on the ground in order not to give offspring to his brother. But what he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord, so he took his life also. Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought, I'm afraid that he too may die like his brothers. So Tamar went and lived in her father's house. Here in Genesis 38, Judah's son, Onan, refused to raise up a son for his brother. And in verse 9, we're given the reason why. Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. That's why he didn't want to do it. He knew that the child that would be born would not be his. So as seen in the case of Mr. So-and-so and in the case of Onan, from a practical perspective, it appears that leveret marriage was not at all appealing to those who found themselves obligated to carry it out. It was apparently not an action that was going to get you ahead in life. It would actually set you back. You were going to have to pour considerable resources into supporting your brother's widow, and in raising up a son for him. So all of that time, all of that effort, all of that money would be spent doing something that was not going to benefit you personally. Who was it going to benefit? It was going to benefit your dead brother. So that's, that son that you would raise would not carry on your name, but your brother's name. Now, when we come to Ruth 4 and we see Boaz, in Boaz we see someone who is the polar opposite of Mr. So-and-so and Onan. The very thing that repels Mr. So-and-so and Onan from fulfilling this obligation 
is the very thing that seems to motivate Boaz. Mr. So-and-so and Onan, they, they were motivated by what could get them ahead, by what would further their own inheritance. But Boaz seems motivated by what will help out this family in need. Boaz desires to rescue Ruth. He desires to rescue Naomi. He desires to rescue from oblivion the names of Naomi and Ruth's husbands, Elimelech and Malin. Boaz, unlike Mr. So-and-so and Onan, is willing to pay whatever it costs him in order to perpetuate these guys' names. Boaz seems to give no thought as to whether or not doing this duty will jeopardize his own inheritance. All he's thinking about, all he's interested in, is preserving Elimelech's and Malin's inheritance. He gives no thought to the ramifications of having a son who will not legally be his. What he's interested in is raising up a son in Elimelech's and Malin's name. That's what he's interested in. Now let me read verses 9 and 10 again of Ruth 4. And these are the only two verses we're looking at this morning. So after Boaz gets the sandal from Mr. So-and-so, verse 9 says, Then Boaz said to the elders and to all the people, You are witnesses today that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilian and Malan. Moreover, I have acquired Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malan, to be my wife in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance so that the name of the deceased will not be cut off from his brothers or from the court or gate of his birthplace. You are witnesses today. As you read verses 9 to 10, there, there almost seems to be a, a note of victory in Boaz's declaration in those two verses. He just says it boldly and clearly. You can picture Boaz standing there with Mr. So-and-so's sandal in his hands, gladly announcing his right and his responsibility to redeem this family, something that Mr. So-and-so shrank back from. And Boaz, in order to make the transaction that has just taken place between him and Mr. So-and-so official, in order to make that transaction official, Boaz explicitly says what he has done. And he tells the people, that is the ten elders he gathered together and whatever crowd had formed in the midst of the proceedings, he tells the people that they are witnesses to what has occurred. And that's basically him making it legal and final. First, in verse 9, he says that he has bought or he has redeemed from Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and his two sons. And this, this really speaks to what Boaz had initially brought to Mr. So-and-so's attention up in verse 3, remember? In verse 3, he informs Mr. So-and-so of the situation. He tells him Naomi has to sell her brother's land. In verse 9, Boaz is saying, I'm going to do that. I will redeem that property. Second, in verse 10, he says he has acquired Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of Malan, to be his wife. In other words, he is willing to do what Mr. So-and-so was unwilling to do. Remember, what was Mr. So-and-so willing to redeem? Just the land. What was he unwilling to redeem? 
What was he unwilling to do? Marry Ruth. But Boaz, on the other hand, is willing to do both. And he says so very clearly to all those who are there. And the fact that Boaz is willing to do both, what is, what is the result of that going to be? Well, the result of this is that all of Elimelech's, Killian's, and Malin's property that he will buy from Naomi is going to wind up not in his hands, but in whose hands? The son that he will have with Ruth. None of that property is going to remain with Boaz. It's going to remain in Elimelech's name and in his family. And that's what Boaz says in verse 10. He's buying the land and he's acquiring Ruth to be his wife, verse 10, in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance so that the name of the deceased will not be cut off from his brothers or from the court or gate of his birthplace. Do you see in verse 10 whose inheritance Boaz calls it? He calls it his inheritance, that is, Elimelech's inheritance, Malin's inheritance. He still views it as their inheritance, not his, even though he's buying it. Now, this is why I'm only making it through these two verses, because I want to press pause here, because I think it's hard for us to understand the, the full significance of what is happening. Why all this fuss about inheritance and land and maintaining your place in the city in which you lived? I thought we were supposed to treasure up, uh, I thought we were supposed to store up treasure in heaven and not worry about that kind of stuff. So what's going on here? Why are they so concerned about what seems to us as, as a material thing, a worldly thing? Well, you're right. We are supposed to put our hope in the Lord, not in the things of this world. But I hope to show you that this concern that Naomi and Ruth and Boaz and the people of Israel had about inheritance was not at odds with that New Testament teaching. I want to show you that it was actually because of their hope in God that they were so concerned about their inheritance in the land of Israel. And we're going to go to a, a number of passages just to kind of tease that out to show you why that's the case. First of all, let's go to Genesis 15. Genesis 15, and we'll look at verses 1 through 7. This is Abram's interaction with God. Genesis 15, starting in verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me, since I am childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. 
And he, God, said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. Then drop down to verse 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenite and the Kenizzite and the Cadmonite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Rephaim and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Girgashite and the Jebusite. So in, in chapter 15 there, what did God promise to give Abraham? Two things. He promised to give him many descendants, and he promised to give him a land, right? Next, let's turn to Genesis 17. Genesis 17. And I'll read verses 1 through 8 there. Now, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings will come forth from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. Now pay special attention to verse 8. He says, I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So as we saw in chapter 15, according to verse 8 of chapter 17, what did God promise to give to Abraham and his descendants after him? The land, right? The land of your sojournings. All the land of Canaan. And for how long did God promise to give it to him? Forever. An everlasting possession. That's what he says there. Now let's go to Genesis 48. In Genesis 48, we see Abraham's grandson, Jacob, who was also known as Israel. And we see an interaction between Jacob and his son, Joseph. <clears throat> let's look at verses 1 through 6 of this chapter. Now it came about after these things that Joseph was told, Behold, your father is sick. So he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, with him. When it was told to Jacob, Behold, your son Joseph has come to you, Israel collected his strength and sat up in bed. Then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And he said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and numerous and I will make you a company of peoples and will give this land to your descendants after you for an everlasting possession. Now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. And what he's saying there is 
Joseph, your two sons, they will be two tribes in the land that God is, is giving to me. Verse 6, but your offspring that have been born after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the names of their brothers and their inheritance. So in verses 1 through 6, what is promised to Jacob? Well, it's the same thing that was promised to Abraham, right? Many descendants and the land as an everlasting possession. Now drop down to verses 15 and 16, where Jacob is blessing his son Joseph, and he's blessing Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Verse 15, he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads. And now listen, he says, And may my name live on in them, and the names of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and may they grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. So Jacob prayed that his name and the names of his fathers, Abraham and Isaac, would live on in his grandchildren and that they would grow into a multitude. Now let's pause and consider the question, why is Jacob hung up on the continuance of his name and on the land? Why is he so focused on that? Well, it's because that's what God promised him. When God promises you something, you, you treasure that, right? Because it's, it's God showing you favor. It's God giving you what, what you did not deserve. It is God ha- making a covenant with you and making you one of his children. Jacob was so hung up on it because that's what God had promised him. If Jacob's line of descent was broken, if somewhere down the line his kids stopped having kids, and the land was lost to him, and his name was forgotten, what would that mean? It would mean that God had what? He'd lied. Lied to him. It would mean that God took away Jacob's inheritance. It would mean God had rejected Jacob. And not just Jacob, but had rejected his fathers, Abraham and Isaac, because he promised the exact same thing to them as well. I mean, you see Moses banking on that promise after the Israelites commit idolatry, right? As Moses is up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments, and God says, Moses, step aside. I'm going to wipe out these people, and I'll make a nation out of you. What does Moses say? He says, no, Lord, remember your promise to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And God, in light of his promise, says, okay, I'm not going to wipe them out. The descendants and the land were the very expressions of God's gracious choice of these people. Now let's turn over to Deuteronomy 30. Deuteronomy chapter 30. These are some of Moses' last words. Moses and that second generation of Israelites who came out of Egypt, they're standing poised to enter into the promised land. And Deuteronomy 30 is following on the heels of Chapters 28 and 29, where God is uh, listing the blessings that will come if the people obey him and the curses that will come if they disobey him. And one of the curses is that he would kick them out of the land. Look at what it says in Deuteronomy 30, verse 1. So it shall be 
when all of these things, with reference to the blessings and curses, when all of these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind in all the nations where the Lord your God has banished you. What is, what is God assuming is going to happen? He's going to banish them. Verse 2, And you return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and soul, according to all that I command you today, you and your sons. Then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will bring you back. The Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it, and he will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, so that you may live. You see, shockingly, in verse 1, we are told, even before they enter the land, that it's going to come about that they will disobey and get kicked out of the very land that he is bringing them into. But then in verse 5, God says that after I've kicked you out of the land, I'm going to bring you back. And in verse 6, he says, I'm going to give you a new heart so that you will never get kicked out of the land again. So we see in Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 through 6, that not even the people's rebellion will stop God from making sure that he fulfills that promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give his, him and his descendants uh, many descendants and land as an everlasting possession. And then lastly, let's go to Ezekiel 47. So go to Isaiah, then Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. Ezekiel 47. And Ezekiel, he is writing during the time period of the exile. This is after God did exactly what he said he was going to do in Deuteronomy 30, verse 1. The people have been kicked out of the land because of their rebellion. Ezekiel is writing during that time. Ezekiel 47, verse 13. Listen to what is said here. Thus says the Lord God, This shall be the boundary by which you shall divide the land for an inheritance among the twelve tribes of Israel. Joseph shall have two portions. You shall divide it for an inheritance, each one equally with the other. For I swore to give it to your forefathers, and this land shall fall to you as an inheritance. This is speaking of a time that is yet future, when God will restore the land fully and finally to his chosen people Israel, and he will divvy it up anew according to the twelve tribes. And this is in fulfillment of what he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is one of the things, the restoration of the land to Israel. This is one of the things that Jesus, the Messiah, will accomplish when he returns to set up his kingdom. So you see, this inheritance that we find reference to in Ruth 4, this inheritance was not confined to this present age. It, it extends on into the age to come. You don't have to turn there, but... In Isaiah 66 and verse 22, God 
promises to his people this. He says, Just as the new heavens and the new earth which I will make endure before me, declares the Lord, so your offspring and name will endure. So this, this possession of the land is not just for the here and now, for the Israelites. It, it extends into the age to come. This was, and it still is, the hope of believing Israel. In fact, for the Israelite, losing your inheritance, having your name be forgotten, cut off from your people, losing your place among God's people, that could be seen as an experience of God's judgment. We see this, if you want to write it down, in Isaiah 48, verses 17 through 19. In Isaiah 48, 17 to 19, God addresses Israel, saying, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord your God who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way you should go. If only you had paid attention to my commandments, then your well-being would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your descendants would have been like the sand and your offspring like its grains. Their name would never be cut off or destroyed from my presence. So when someone's name was cut off, when their descendants were not like the sand on the seashore, that implied what? That they had not kept the Lord's commandments. So thinking back to Ruth, uh, Ruth chapter 1, remember when Naomi, when her husband and her two sons died without any offspring? Naomi was seeing herself and her family as cut off from God's land. And so it's, it's no wonder in, in chapter 1, verse 13, when Naomi said, God's hand has gone forth against me. What she had hoped in, in her eyes, had been stripped from her. She thought God was judging her. So now that we've gone through those verses, can you see why the Israelites would have such a concern to maintain their inheritance, to maintain their name and their place in the promised land? Their inheritance was their experience of God's precious promise to Abraham. It was their participation in that promise to lose their inheritance, to have their name extinguished from the ranks of God's people, was to lose their full participation in that promise. So when we read Ruth 4, and we see this responsibility to redeem the land and to redeem Ruth, we can better understand what's at stake here. That is, that is the gravity of the situation here in chapter 4. And that is why it was such an evil for a man to be unwilling to raise up a son in the name of his dead brother. For a man to be unwilling to do that was a, for a man to willingly let his dead brother be cut off from the full experience of God's promise. Now back to Boaz. Unlike Onan... And unlike Mr. So-and-so, Boaz was unwilling to just let that happen to Naomi and her family. And this is where the point at which I want to bring this into our own experience as Christians. You understand that we too have a Redeemer 
who was unwilling to allow us to simply perish, to be cut off from God's blessed presence. He was unwilling to allow our names to be erased from his book of life. In Revelation 20, verse 15, it says this about the coming day of judgment. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. But in Revelation chapter 3, verse 5, speaking of the believer as the one who overcomes, Jesus says this, He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Now picture Boaz standing there in front of those elders, in front of that crowd who had gathered with that sandal in his hand and saying what he says in verse 10 as he proclaims his right to redeem this family. Notice how he confesses them by name. He mentions every one of their names. He mentions Naomi. He mentions Elimelech. He mentions Killian. He mentions Malan. And he mentions Ruth. Now think about our Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our Redeemer, he doesn't hold a sandal in his hands as the mark of his right to redeem. Instead of a sandal, he holds scars where the nails pierced his hands as he was crucified in order to redeem us and to pay for our sins, to purchase our pardon so that we might live. And then Jesus rose from the dead showing that God had fully accepted his payment. God had fully accepted his sacrifice on our behalf. And as Naomi and Ruth were depending on Boaz to accomplish their redemption, so we, if we turn from our sins and we trust in Jesus alone to be our Redeemer and to be our Lord, we will find our Savior Just as Boaz confessed their names, we will find our Savior confessing our names before that heavenly assembly of God the Father and his holy angels. But if you do not run to Jesus Christ for salvation, then your name will be blotted out of God's book of life and you will be cast into the lake of fire forever and ever. So run to Jesus by faith because as Boaz delighted to rescue Naomi's family So his greater descendant, the Lord Jesus Christ, delights in rescuing sinners. Lord, uh, our Redeemer is one who is eager to redeem us. He did not shrink back at the prospect of how much it would cost him to redeem us, to take upon himself a needy people. But he, like Boaz, he ran right toward that cost, and he paid it in full. We thank you that our Lord is our willing and our mighty Redeemer. And Lord, as we prepare to celebrate the Lord's Supper, help us to think about that, that through his sacrifice, by faith, this Redeemer confesses our names before you in heaven. We thank you that he is not ashamed to call us his children, to call us his brethren, because of the redemption that he accomplished in order to purchase us and to make us your children. 
Lord, help us to love our Lord more because of what he's done. In Jesus' name, amen.